great way to go. I'd like to welcome all of you this evening to what I'm looking forward to very much and hope you are too, to find out about one of the lesser known reformers. Great uh, week and weekend to be able to do this. It's part of a number of things going on at Geneva this week. I'm Jonathan Watt. I'm the chair of the Biblical Studies, Ministries, and Philosophy Department. And uh, very happy this evening, just very briefly, to introduce uh, Dr. Byron Curtis, who, of course, will be presenting on Old Zwingli. I, uh, some of you may have seen what was uh, a rather enjoyable piece that ran recently in our denominational magazine, uh, The Reformed Presbyterian Witness. I got this. I wasn't sure what was in there, but was intrigued on the cover because, as many people know, good Reformed Presbyterians have a Scots-Irish heritage. And... The, uh, the Covenanters, as they were known, uh, proliferated 17th century in Scotland, and I was to discover that my colleague here is teaching a, a form of heresy, I, I think it is, um, by his title that says, the first Reformed Presbyterian was Swiss, and uh, what a cheesy article it must have been on uh, that. Anyway, uh, you'll find out about why he wrote such a thing, you know, the Baptist historian Bruce Shelley in his introduction to church history says that many people have what he calls historical amnesia. And uh, this is one of the ways for us to uh, deflect that kind of a thing and have a wonderful insight, uh, rollicking insight at the same time. Very glad to welcome uh, you up here, Byron. Good to have you with us. Thank you. So I will indeed uh, try to defend the indef apparently indefensible thesis that the first <laughs> Presbyterian was uh, Swiss. Um, so something bold for God. This is uh, one of the more famous sentences from a rather unfamous fellow who ought to be famous. Do something bold for God. So says Aldrich Zwingli. We have some difficulty with the spelling of his name um, in his um, signing in as a young university student in Vienna he signed himself as Odrechus, a good Latin form. Uh, we have Holdrich, we have Ulrich, we have Holdreich, we have about five different spellings, and he himself did all of them. <laughs> all right, so Ulrich. Uh, Zwingli itself, uh, the name is Zwingli. The Germans didn't like that final I, and so in Germany his name was usually published as Zwingel, um, <laughs> with an E on the end, a Z-W-I-N-G-L-E, like he was some sort of bebop artist, uh, Aldrich Zwingel. Um, and he hated that. He just hated that. Uh, his particular language is, are you ready? Deutsch, Swiss German, which Luther thought was barbaric. Uh, so there is Luther up in Germany speaking what will eventually get tagged as Hochdeutsch, a high German uh, and the German uh, Bible that he will publish in 1534 will be the great document that unifies German language in a particular literary standard that gets tagged High German, Hochdeutsche. But uh, Zwingli is down there in Zurich. It's not even Germany. It's uh, northern Switzerland. It's in the Alps. And um, there they're doing what um, people in New York would consider Alabama. Yeah, that's the kind of accent. Uh, so the, those people down there in Zurich, they're not even Bavarians. They're not even that good. Um, they're doing something almost barbaric uh, there in their Schweizer Deutsche. And in consulting with, um, boy, that's a very large bottle of water. Uh, in consulting with a, a German specialist uh, from uh, Carnegie Mellon, um, 
uh, Dr. Chris Holstein, uh, he told me there were no less than six dialects of Schweizerdeutsch. And uh, I suppose for the country folk of these regions, they might be even mutually, un you know, m m mutually misunderstood. So here is Hodrick Zwingli. Uh, something bold for God, Zwingli at 500. So um, in January 1st, 1519, Aldrich Zwingli is a 35-year-old priest, newly appointed to a city church. Before this point, he's been a priest in smaller towns or even villages. But now at age 35, he's appointed to a city church in one of the largest cities in all of the Zurich, uh, all of the, uh, the Swiss Federation, namely Zurich, far northern Switzerland. And on his first Sunday, his birthday, January 1st, 1519, he makes the shocking announcement that he's going to dispense with the pre-printed sermons that have been provided by the bishops. Brief homilies in booklets prepared for the priests to read. He's going to dispense with those, and he's going to preach his own self-constructed sermons. Wow. And what's more, he's going to do them based upon the New Testament. Yeah, the New Testament. And so the first sermon, January 1st, 1519, 500 years ago and, what, 10 months uh, is Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Five and a half years later, he finishes the New Testament, except for the book of Revelation. Because like many other early Renaissance people, including Roman Catholic cardinals, the question of the canonicity of Revelation has come up again. It was in some dispute in the 4th century AD. Uh, in particular, the bishop named Eusebius, disputed the authenticity of Revelation. Um, but again, in the 16th century, the dispute about Revelation is again up for grabs, and, um, or rather the canonicity of the book is again up for grabs, and Zwingli is in doubt. So he preaches all the New Testament except for the Apocalypse and turns to the Old, and um, the rest of his ministry is principally, that is in preaching ministry, is principally Old Testament texts until his untimely death at age 47 on October 11th, 1531. So 20 days, uh, what's today's date? Um, 20 days before today almost, um, uh, not quite 500 years ago, Zwingli was slain on a battlefield. So let's uh, investigate the story of Zwingli. And um, we'll start with um, formative influences. And uh, there's a long tradition of um, Swiss patriotism. Did I skip a slide? I think maybe I did. No, I didn't. Okay. A long tradition of Swiss patriotism. Uh, and going back to uh, legends like William Tell, who rebelled against members of the Habsburg uh, Empire back in something like the 13th or 14th centuries. Okay, it's blurry and faded and uh, not entirely clear as to what the real events are. But the Swiss up in their mountain bastions successfully held off the encroachments of a highly taxing lowland group from, the, from Austria, the lowlands, and um, Swiss the Swiss became semi-autonomous. They paid you know, um, lip service to overlords, but didn't really obey them. And so Swiss independence becomes a, uh, an important tradition uh, well over 600 years ago. And if you've ever heard uh, or watched the opera William Tell or heard its famous overture, which is the Lone Ranger theme, it's built upon that 
uh, that theme of Swiss uh, patriotism. Um, the Swiss in their mountain fastnesses became ardent and feared warriors. And um, in their mountain hideouts, they could hold off almost virtually any foreign force. And in fact, they hired themselves out because it was discovered that young Swiss men could make a lot of money as military forces for various kings and princes and even the Pope of Rome. All right, so when you go to, if you go, how many have been to the Vatican? Who, who are the guards in the Vatican? They are Swiss, and they wear 16th century garb with the kilts and the pleats and all of that, still with the Vatican, and they hold the 16th century weapons, you know, those long pole axes. Now, beneath their cloaks, they also have berettas. Okay, small, very effective pistols. Um, but uh, the weaponry that's on display is 16th century weaponry because of the Swiss tradition of uh, armed power. And uh, I'm told uh, that in northern Italy, sometimes when mamas want to scare their kids and get them into bed earlier, they say, the Swiss are coming. <laughs> all right, so there is, uh, there, by the way, there is uh, no less than three spellings of Aldrich there. There are more than these, but uh, the three main ones in the, in the tradition. So one of the great formative factors about, um, about Zwingli is Swiss patriotism. He was an ardent patriot. Uh, next formative influence will be uh, the influence of what's called Renaissance humanism. Now, what in the world is Renaissance humanism? Well, let's go with the Renaissance first. The word is French. It means rebirth. And it was uh, named by somewhat later people who um, thought that the so-called Middle Ages were inferior and that the real deal in human history so far up to that point had been the Greco-Roman antiquity, the classical culture, which had reached in some ways a very high pinnacle of success, beauty, and truth. Great cultural power in Greco-Roman antiquity, which by the fourth century is deeply Christianized. All right, so a Christian classical tradition from the fourth century AD uh, in what we would call the Roman Empire, especially the um, um, well, enough there. So uh, the Renaissance was said to be a rebirth of those cultural values. It was actually a partial birth of some of those cultural values. And when they named the previous period the Middle Ages, can you tell that that's actually an insult? Two high points of light, classical antiquity and rebirth, Renaissance. And what's in the middle? Nothing very important. We nickname those uh, years today the Dark Ages, but there was not much dark about them. There was actually a brilliant Christian civilization at work. But um, the Renaissance nonetheless claimed a new light, and that is, in fact, true in many ways. And uh, one of the principal ideologies or value systems within the Renaissance is tagged Renaissance humanism. Now, these days in uh, American evangelical Christianity, uh, and uh, American Roman Catholic Christianity, there's a severe critique, and rightly so, of secular humanism. That is the idea that we rule ourselves by our own value, by our own uh, intellect and our own will, and we are autonomous. You know, no rule from the gods or from the Christian God. That's past. We rule ourselves. We determine our own future. We are the rulers. We'll call that secular humanism. The humanists of the 16th century were not that. Uh, there were a few agnostics and atheists in their number, but not many. The vast, vast number of them identified deeply as Christian, 
And in their definition of the standards of this ancient classic civilization that they wanted to recover in rebirth, it included not just the Greco-Roman writers, but also the Bible, and preferably the Bible in its original languages. Now, those who know me uh, to some degree know that I'm actually a Hebrew Bible scholar, and I'm a bit overstretched to become a church historian. So when I arrived at Geneva in 91, I was handed the church history courses, and I gulped and said, thank you. That's been 29 years, so I've been teaching church history for 29 years, and I, it's become my second field, and I do publish in academic journals in that field. So, okay, I saw a Hebrew Bible scholar who's also something of a church historian. I joked last week to a conference of real historians that I wasn't a historian, but I played one on TV. All right, so Christian humanism. And the hero of that was a uh, man named Erasmus, born in Rotterdam, of uh, illegitimate birth, and he became um, a monk and priest, but by special permission of his bishop was allowed to leave his monastic order and take up a life as scholar. All the great universities of Europe wanted him on their faculties, but he said yes to none of them. He would come as a visiting professor. And maybe he'd be in Cambridge for a year, and he'd be in, in Paris for a year or two, and then he'd go somewhere else. But he would anchor himself at no particular university. He was perhaps the first person in world history to make his living by his pen. He sold books. He wrote books and sold books, and that paid the bills. And Erasmus, Erasmus famously said that when I get some extra money, I buy books. And if I have anything left over, then I buy food and clothes. So that's Erasmus. Here he is in his old age in the 1530s, holding one of his great books. And um, Europe's most famous scholar, a friend of popes and cardinals, a friend of kings, a consultant of kings, and um, the model for what becomes known as Erasmian humanism. When Zwingli is in university, who is the hero? It's Erasmus. And Zwingli will meet Erasmus, and they will develop a pen pal type relationship. They will write to each other over the years until Zwingli breaks with the Roman church. And then the correspondence will end. But they are, they are friends through the pen. And um, Zwingli, the young Zwingli, becomes known as an Erasmian, an Erasmian scholar. Now, here's the place of birth. The town is um, called Wildhaus, wild house to you, uh, a high alpine village, uh, much higher than Beaver Falls. And uh, there he's born January 1st, 1484. His father is a landowning peasant, which means that he's a fairly important person within his village and neighborhood, but not a very important person in the wider world of Switzerland. But uh, Zwingli, the young Zwingli, has an uncle who is a priest and scholar. And uh, that uncle takes the young man under his wing because young Holdrich Zwingli is obviously brilliant. He is brilliant. And so uh, he's taken to the best schools and enrolled Basel, Bern, even Vienna for a while, the great university. He returns to Bern, the most important city in Switzerland, and there earns his master's degree. He has learned Greek well. He thinks in Latin. He writes well in either dialect of German, the higher German of the north and the lower German of Zurich. And he also writes well in Latin and thinks in Latin. And he also writes well and reads well in 
Greek. And um, when he finishes his master's degree, he very quickly then travels to Constance, which is the residence of his bishop. And there he is ordained a Roman priest by the Bishop of Constance, 1506, and appointed to a town up in the highlands in the Alps, Glarus, where he excels. Now, around 1514, there's a scandal. You may not know this, but in that 15th and 16th century time, most priests had um, housekeepers who, um, you know, who cooked the food and made the beds and cleaned the house and things like that. Most of these women were actually de facto wives to the priests, but their children were not legitimate. And it was an open secret that nearly every priest had such a wife because the rule was an enforced celibacy. The Bishop of Rome, known as the Pope, and his bishops all supported the long tradition of priestly celibacy, no marriage for priests. They are um, without the commitment of the bond of marriage. But this is an impossible ideal for most people. And it was an open secret that priests did not live this way. Well, Zwingli um, has an affair and uh, has to repent of it. And he has another one and has to repent of it. In the meantime, he's come now to a larger town, to the town of Glarus, and um, I'm sorry, um, uh, in the town of Einsiedeln, which is a famous monastery town with a great collection of relics. And he preaches for the nuns, and he preaches to the pilgrims who come to, to, to uh, venerate the relics. Now, what in the world is a relic? Some object or body part from a saint. All right, so the cloak of a saint, or the hair of a saint, or the tooth of a saint, the fingernail of a saint. And um, this was a major source of gaining merit in the system of salvation in the Roman Catholic Church, and still is to some degree today. Luther's own prince um, had a collection of relics, um, not quite a million objects, vast number, maybe the largest collection in Europe outside of Rome was held by Frederick um, uh, Luther's prince in Saxony. And uh, you would visit them, you would venerate them, you would kiss them, and this gained you uh, fewer days in purgatory, greater merit in the soul. Uh, and so Zwingli is preaching the relics in Einsiedeln from 1506 to 1516, and improving his um, Greek and also beginning Hebrew. After all, he's an Erasmian. And the Erasmians are devoted to the text of classical antiquity. The most important of such texts is, in fact, the Bible, and the Bible preferably in its original language. So Hebrew is on the agenda. Baruch atah, blessed are you, O Zwingli. All right, I teach Hebrew. I've done it for 29 years. Um, so... Um, Another factor in Zwingli's career is a terrible a disaster. The Battle of Magnano, 1516. Now, I mentioned the Swiss mercenaries. And uh, in uh, Glarus and Einstein, um many young men sign up for the mercenary service because the pay is great. It's a way to set yourself for life. If you survive the wars, you come back relatively rich and you buy land and cattle and you get married and you settle down and maybe a year or two or three of this life settles you for the rest of your life 
with economic security. So young men did it, and by the thousands in Switzerland. And Zwingli goes forth as chaplain to the troops of Glarus in 1516. And uh, this particular battle is um, Italian city-states fighting for their independence against the king of France, the rather young and vigorous Francis I, whom Calvin will write to 20 years later in the preface to the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And uh, there in Italy at the Battle of Marignano, the, the Swiss, uh, the, their Italian generals are incompetent. The French forces are the best funded and the best armed and the best trained. They've got artillery, they've got the sharpest and best steel in their weapons, and um, the Swiss are massacred. 10,000 Swiss killed on a single day. And the French showed no mercy to those who tried to surrender. Zwingli survives it, but is traumatized by the experience. In a tractate published not long after, he denounces the practice of mercenary service as murder, murder. And he calls for a new Swiss policy, armed neutrality. All right, now you've, you oldsters in the room, what was the status of Switzerland in World War I? Armed neutrality. What's the status of Switzerland in World War II? Armed neutrality. And how many of you guys have a red knife in your pocket with a Swiss cross on it? Okay, where's mine? I got it down here somewhere. Okay, the Swiss army knife. Okay, so the armed neutrality actually dates from the early 16th century, and Zwingli is one of its principal architects. All right, so here we have early influences. Um, and um, moving on now, Zwingli becomes regionally famous in his ministry now in Einsiedeln because all these pilgrimage are here, pilgrims to the shrine site are hearing him preach, and he's pretty good. And news goes now to Zurich, the largest city in the region. It's about 8,000 people. In those days, a large city for Switzerland. And uh, Zurich hears of the sexual affairs, but he is vouched for by several friends who say, no, he's penitent. And so the young Zwingli, now 34 years old, uh, comes to Zurich, the great city, where he shall be priest. The title is People's Priest at the Great Minster Church. That's the downtown church, all right? So First Presbyterian Beaver Falls, okay, downtown, or maybe, maybe in older days, St. Mary's Catholic, okay, downtown Beaver Falls. And People's Priest. Now, the title People's Priest means that he's not serving the monastery. There would be a priest for the, for, the, for the monks and another priest perhaps for the nuns, but he is the priest for the people, the laity. And he arrives in December of 1518, having survived the scandal. And um, his first Sunday administering the Mass, he makes a shocking announcement. It is his birthday. He's now 35. And uh, January 1st, 1519, the announcement is this. I am not going to preach the canned sermons pre-printed for me by my bishop. I'm going to preach my own sermons. Now, preaching in those days was surprisingly rare. Priests in general were not expected to preach. They were expected to recite the memorized text of the Mass. Most villages had um, half-trained priests who maybe barely understood Latin, but they could recite the Latin text reasonably well enough. They usually could not read Latin, but they could recite it. 
the way, the way that maybe you could recite the Latin lines of the Christmas carol, Adestes Fidelis. How many sang that back in your childhood, perhaps? Okay, oh, come all you faithful. The Latin text was sung by me back in the sixth grade. I learned it. Okay, I could recite it. And um, all right, so most preach, I'm sorry, most service in villages is not preaching. It's the recitation of the liturgy of the mass, which culminates in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper called the Eucharist. And in those days defined by the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation, that is that the bread and wine by miracle become the literal deified body and blood of Jesus. And so you bow in worship. When the priest intones the words, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, a chime, a bell rings by the sacristan and the congregation hearing the bell bows the knee not to Christ in heaven, but to Christ in the bread. And you worship Christ in the bread. And we have the true and miraculous presence of deity in the bread. In fact, it is no more bread. It only appears to be bread. It is Jesus. All right, so Zwingli is doing this. 1519. While also preaching the New Testament. The first sermon, as I've said, is Matthew chapter 1. Imagine now a spellbinding sermon upon the genealogy of Jesus. All right, the first paragraphs or so of Matthew 1 are the genealogy of Jesus for 42 generations, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to the Christ, and uh, 17 verses of genealogy. That's the main burden of that opening uh, section of the New Testament, and uh, that's the first sermon, the genealogy of Jesus. But people are thrilled, or if not thrilled, fascinated, or if not fascinated, curious. Because this is strange. Now Zwingli actually has permission from his bishop to preach. He's got a master's degree. So he's academically qualified. And he actually has obtained a stipend from the Pope through one of the cardinals to support this ministry in Zurich. So while the Pope is opposing Luther up there in German Wittenberg, the Pope is supporting Zwingli in Roman Catholic Zurich. And so um, from 1519 to 1525, the middle of that year, the New Testament is preached. First it's Matthew, and then because of perplexities in the congregation, he goes to the book of Acts to show that this preaching business is what the apostles did. And if you know your book of Acts, at least somewhat, you know that there are many sermons of the apostles that are excerpted in the book of Acts, starting with chapter 2. There were at least 12 such sermons within the 28 chapters of Acts. And Zwingli shows his congregation that preaching by the apostles was normal and, in fact, is instituted by the apostles. And then to settle a question about the role of faith and works, the next book to be preached is Galatians. Sounds a bit like Luther, who early on struggled with Galatians. And uh, so a slow reformation begins, January 1st, 1519. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. No, meanwhile, up in Germany, the 95 theses have happened. October 31st, hey, that's tomorrow. Uh, the eve of All Saints Day in their calendar, uh, Martin Luther, a doctor of the young University of Wittenberg, has posted an academic invitation on the castle church door of the university in Wittenberg. And uh, the point of that document is to invite other academics to debate 95 sentences in Latin 
over the propriety of the sale of documents, documents called indulgences, documents authorized by the Pope, that with the purchase or the gift of them, one's days in purgatory after death can be lessened. So the remission of the penalties of sin. Previously uh, in, in Roman Catholic history, the indulgence was for the earthly penalties of sin, but in the late 15th century, a church council authorized the Pope to issue such indulgences also for the post-mortem penalties of sin, that is, penalties in purgatory, the antechamber of heaven. Now, uh, Luther publishes his, or rather writes his 95 theses against the sale of these indulgences. Not that he is disloyal to the Pope. In fact, he thinks the Pope, in, at least in this document, he says the Pope doesn't really want this. The sale is improper. Uh, the church has, of course, the power to give such things away. And indulgences are, in fact, legal in the Roman church, Luther says. But if an indulgence replaces repentance, it is from hell. And so the very first of the 95 theses is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of the Christian to be one of penitence. How does Luther know this? Well, because the previous year, 1516, Erasmus published the first marketed Greek New Testament. It was called the Novum Instrumentum. Uh, this page actually is the second edition. I couldn't get a good photo of the first edition, which is 1516. But um, 1516, March of that year in Basel, the New Testament rolls off the presses and you can go down to the corner shop and buy it. Before that point, where could you see it? Well, maybe a monastery library in handwritten copies that were 300 years old. Or maybe in the library of a wealthy nobleman who might own some manuscripts of it. But to have the entire Greek New Testament in print, in affordable copies, this was, this was amazing. And of course, the printing press was the Wi-Fi and internet and email and Twitter of um, those days, invented in the 1450s by Johann Gutenberg, whose only publication was the Latin Bible. He published 180 copies of it and went bankrupt. That was the first book printed by movable type in world history in the West. So Erasmus now is doing this with the Greek New Testament, and in the meantime, more than a million books have appeared from the printing presses of Europe, and so the cost of them has come down. Zwingli can't afford one. He's still a poorly paid priest in 1516 when the book comes out. But we do have an interesting piece from Zwingli. That's his handwriting. The main text of the nice lines is one of Paul's letters, transcribed by hand by Ulrich Zwingli from the local monastery library in Einsiedeln. And in the left-hand margin, and here and there, uh, where's my, okay. So here's the main text of Erasmus's Greek, hand copied by Zwingli from the published book. And this bit here, and this bit here, and all of that there, those are Zwingli's annotations on that page. We have a complete copy of all of Paul's letters in Zwingli's handwriting, similarly annotated, dated March 1517. That's seven months before Luther's 95 Theses. 
and the annotations show that already Ulrich Zwingli is thinking of the doctrines that shall be known eventually as Protestant Reformation. They are there in the margins of his annotated copy of, hand copy of Erasmus's printed book. This is not Erasmus's printed book. This is Zwingli's poor man's hand copy of it, copied in the monastery library. So here's Erasmus, and here is his disciple, Ulrich Zwingli, and uh, a sample page of the handwritten copy. When I discovered that online, I was thrilled. I knew it existed, but I hadn't seen it, so I was thrilled to discover that photograph. Um, all right, so um, the business then of Zwingli is uh, preaching the New Testament. Now, in late 1519, disaster strikes, I'm sorry, in mid-1519, disaster strikes the city of Zurich. The plague, bubonic plague. Zwingli is out of town when it hits, and he could have obeyed the quarantine which kept visitors out of Zurich. He didn't. He returned to his city and to his pastoral charge to care for the sick and pray for the dying. Now, in bubonic plague, um, as soon as the symptoms appear on your body, you've got about an hour, uh, sorry, you've got about a day, maybe two days to live. Maybe you'll even die within 18 hours of the manifestation of the illness. Zwingli and his brother care for the sick. The brother, Andrew, dies of it. Zwingli himself catches the disease and believes that he will die. And in the midst of uh, that, he begins to write a poem to God expressing grief and, and repentance. And, um, but nonetheless, he survives it. And so we have an 80-lined poem in Good Schweizer Deutsche, which is called The Plague Song. And uh, in The Plague Song, let's see, do I have some lyrics here? I think I do. Let me get the lyrics. And um, somewhere here, I've got them. Okay, yes. Um, Help me, O Lord, my strength and rock. Lo, at, at, at the door I hear death's knock. Uplift thine arm once pierced for me that conquered death and set me free. Yet if thy voice in life's midday recall my soul, then I obey. In faith and hope, earth I resign. Secure of heaven, for I am thine. Well, a little piece out of the middle of the poem. By the last stanza, it's clear that Zwingli has recovered and there's gratitude that life has been granted. And in that recovery, Zwingli arises from his sickbed more confident of God, more confident of the gospel, and more confident of his mission to preach the gospel in Zurich. Next big episode. It's March 1522. It's Lent. And in the Roman order of uh, Christian life, Lent means required fasting. And to break the fast of Lent is to commit, are you ready for the word, mortal sin. Now, mortal sin is the Roman church category for sins that damn the soul automatically. There are venial sins, lesser sins, sins that do not damn the soul, Sins that must be confessed to your priest, of course. But sins, if you die with venial sin upon your soul, you go to purgatory, if you're a Christian. And purgatory is the purging of venial sins. But mortal sin, which remains unconfessed, unrepented of, mortal sin damns the soul. 
it cancels the effect of baptismal grace, according to Roman theology. And um, Zwingli and his parishioners have been heeding the New Testament now, and they are perplexed. How is it that a human authority, the Bishop of Rome, has the power to announce something as mortal sin, which the scriptures do not announce as mortal sin? Does a human authority have the power to do that? And so in the house of Zwingli's publisher, a number of people have gathered on a Wednesday, and um, they have a nice lunch of sausages. Now, part of the reason for this protest is that Zurich is a kind of um, port city. Here I've got an image of it. There's the Limach River, and you can imagine now that many of these buildings around the riverfront are warehouses, and the shipping is coming in, and you lead to the Rhine River and the Rhine uh, to the great cities of Germany and the Netherlands, and this is major international commerce. And if you're required to fast from meats during Lent and you work in these places, well, how do you carry all those barrels and all those boxes if protein is denied you? So the workmen are fainting during Lent. And the, pro and the uh, protest becomes a protest of civil rights for working class men who need their sausage to get through the workday. And so there in the house of the publisher, uh, almost next door to the church, um, a protest is staged. And people eat sausage during Lent. Zwingli is there but does not eat. But the following Sunday, he preaches in favor of the protesters. And he announces a principle in the sermon that what God requires in Scripture, the church also must require. And what God does not require in Scripture, the church must not command. It's a principle against human invention in the requirements of religion. Now, can there be freely chosen fasting? Can there be um, various decisions made that we shall do such and such? Yes. But to tag their violation as mortal sin, damnable in its power, this is beyond the authority of the church. And so um, in our story then, uh, Zwingli preaches the sermon the bishop hears of it. But the bishop is a good Zuricer too. He lives in Constance, way down the mountains, in what is now Austria, and he does nothing. And Zwingli then publishes a 40-page tractate based upon the sermon uh, on the selection of foods. And uh, in that rather innocent-sounding title, we have actually a rather excellent Reformation, in fact, Presbyterian principle you Reformed Presbyterians in the room will know, it, will know the name, the regulative principle of worship. What's the regulative principle? That the church cannot command what God does not command. That the church in its worship can only do that which is authorized by God. That's in that 1522 tractate. It may make this particular tractate the first document in the world, in the world to announce the great Presbyterian principle of the regulative principle of worship. Also in that year, Zwingli, sorely tried by sexual temptation, gathers other priests together from Zurich, from the canton, and they write a petition to the bishop saying, the Roman church has no authority to require 
single status, celibacy of its clergy. This is not in the scriptures. The apostles themselves, Peter, yes, married. We petition for the right to marry. The bishop at this point is getting a little irritated with Zwingli, and uh, he must respond to the petition, and he will say no. Nonetheless, Zwingli will marry a wealthy and beautiful, not, I shouldn't say wealthy, uh, 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 an upper-class beautiful widow, Anna Reinhardt. For those who know some German, Reinhardt is pure of heart, and she was. And they have a happy marriage. It'll become a public marriage a year and a half later, which makes Zwingli the first married Protestant pastor while he's still a Roman Catholic. Luther's marriage will be the following year. Luther's already been excommunicated. Zwingli does it as a Roman Catholic. So the secret marriage becomes eventually public marriage to Anna Reinhardt. She will be widowed again. Now in January 1523, because of the rising tide of enthusiasm for the preaching of the scriptures, people ask for a public meeting to determine doctrine for the canton of Zurich. And Zwingli is fully on board on this. In fact, he writes a long document now called the, 60, called the 67 Articles. Um, and um, they meet together in the great hall of the city. They invite the bishop and the bishop's representatives And representatives do come, but there is an attempt to shut it down. The bishop's representative says, you have no right to do this. This is a matter to be cited by bishops alone, including the greatest bishop, the bishop of Rome, the pope. And Zwingli, with a stack of Greek and Hebrew Bibles beside him on the table, says, there is no reason why we should not discuss these matters, speak, and decide the truth. Wow. In other words, Zwingli claims for his Zurich meeting of six or seven hundred people that we have the same spiritual right as what happened at the Council of Nicaea with 300 bishops in 325 AD or at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. We too have the right to discuss the scriptures and declare on their basis what is the truth of the gospel. There will be two such disputations in Zurich, and uh, Zwingli will be readily affirmed in both. What we see then in the Zurich Reformation is this. Patient, cautious reading and reflection upon Holy Scripture in both Hebrew and in Greek. Steady biblical preaching to all the people. And um, something I need to explain, Zwingli called it prophesyings. Now, lest you think he's Pentecostal, he isn't. Prophesying meant something like what Paul is discussing in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says that when you meet together, uh, you know, one person has this uh, a, 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 a teaching, someone else has this, someone else has a song, you know, and, uh, and, and let, let the prophets decide, you know, and let them discern. And uh, what this becomes in Zwingli's interpretation of it, whether right or not, is that this is essentially a Bible study discussion in which laity and clergy freely exchange opinions. And the prophesyings uh, begin with discussion of a, of a set text. And um, then at the end of the discussion period, one of the clergy stands to preach the text in a prepared sermon. And this was called the prophesyings. Public 
Bible study attended maybe by 30, 40, 50 people in the great Zurich, on the great Mr. Church in Zurich. And among these uh, attenders will be the earliest Anabaptists whose names we know. What's the Anabaptist movement? Yet another wing of the Protestant Reformation. Among them will be Felix Mentz, Conrad Grebel, and George Blaurock, three Anabaptists. Right now, they are disciples of Zwingli. But by January 1525, they will baptize each other in Felix Mentz's mother's house by pouring an unbaptized person, pouring water upon the other out of a pitcher, him then pouring water upon the first, and the third then being baptized in a similar way. So no immersions here. But in January, in cold January 1525, three men from this prophesying group break away into what becomes the Anabaptist movement. The word Anabaptist means rebaptizers. So that's the protest group that thinks that the Reformation in Zurich is not going fast enough. Not fast enough, not far enough. They want Reformation, as the phrase goes, without tarrying for anyone. That's not Zwingli's method. Zwingli's method is different. He wants to persuade the population and to persuade the civil authorities. And step by lockstep, civil authority and church move toward Reformation in a fine, orderly manner. That's how the Swiss do it the fine, orderly manner. So the slow persuasion of civil and religious leaders. October um, 1523, the topic of the disputation now, the second Zurich disputation, is especially the mass and images. All right, so the images of, of Christ and Mary and the saints, and the mass, which is the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the physical and, in fact, the, the deity of the incarnate Christ, so that you bow in worship to the bread and to the cup. And in that disputation, both the images and the mass are rejected. However, lest there be rioting and the destruction of church property and such things, the city council decrees no action must yet be taken. Eventually, the city council will uh, announce the closing of all the churches in, in the Zurich Canton for about two weeks. And when the congregations come back, all the churches have been whitewashed <laughs> on the insides. And all the images are gone and carted away without rioting and without the breaking of the art. And uh, there have been rioting in Germany. There have been rioting in villages uh, outside of um, Zurich in the previous year uh, against the images. But, um, but no such rioting. It's all done what decently and in order, which is the Presbyterian way, another proof that he's the first Presbyterian. All right, so um, the mass denounced, but still persists. And in April 1525, it's a year and a half later, the city council gives permission. We abolish the mass. The congregation arrives for the Maundy Thursday service. That's the Thursday night of the Last Supper and Gospel story. The Thursday night of Jesus' arrest, the next day is Good Friday. And so on that Monday Thursday night, the congregation arrives for the Mass, but they are surprised to see no altar in the Great Minster Church. Instead, they see a table in the middle of the floor, not an elevated altar. And the first Reformed Communion takes place with Aldrich Zwingli. 
uh, the Roman Catholic priest, now as Protestant minister. And the break with the Bishop of Constance is now complete because the mass is abolished. April, 1525. Now I mentioned the Anabaptist conflict. The Anabaptists themselves did not like the word Anabaptist because it means the rebaptizers. In their view, the only legitimate subject for a baptism is an adult disciple of Jesus, preferably one who has suffered for it. So present yourself to an Anabaptist community and, and say that you're a Christian. They might not receive you unless you have suffered for it. So Anabaptist is not their own name, but the name that's been given by history. In the 1960s, George Williams at, um, was it Yale or Harvard? Uh, gave a new name, the Radical Reformation. That is, Luther and Zwingli are representatives of a reformation that was done within city governments or state governments or with the cooperation of civil authorities, sometimes even kings. And the Radical Reformation was without government allies. So George Williams tags it, I think, wonderfully well as the Radical Reformation. And uh, in Zurich in 1524, the controversy is um, debated. But in January 1525, it's a live wire, hot button topic. And uh, what has happened among these three men that I mentioned, Philip Mentz, uh, Felix Mentz, uh, George Blaurock, and Conrad Grable, is that in the decision that infant baptism is no baptism at all, there is also the rejection of the idea of Christendom. There is no Christendom, which means that Zurich is not a Christian republic, and the kingdoms of Europe are not Christian kingdoms, and their kings are actually pagans, and the members of the city council of Zurich are actually pagans, and the priest, Aldrich Zwingli, is actually a pagan. And so it's not merely a question of water, it's a question of the status of Christian civilization. And that is why it is a crisis. If it were only a question of water, we wonder why the controversy was so hot, in fact, led to martyrdoms, deaths, executions. But because it's a question of the very legitimacy of their whole world, it becomes a matter of life and death. And in fact, for many of the early Anabaptists, obedience to a non-Christian state was no duty at all. And so the Peasants' Revolt of 1525 seems to have had some Anabaptist leadership. And certainly in 1534-35, when Anabaptists took over the city of um, Munster in Western, uh, Western Germany, it was an Anabaptist kingdom that killed those who would not conform to their rule. Lutheran princes and Roman Catholic princes joined together as allies to put that kingdom down. 1535 for the great disaster at Munster. All right, so Anabaptistry then is vast social disruption. George Blaurock himself rabble, rises, rabble rouses for riots against Zwingli at the great Minster. They are in fact um, exiled and Anabaptism is declared a capital offense. They come back, they're exiled again. And when Felix Menz comes back the second time, he is executed by drowning. You want water? Here's lots of it. In 1969, Zurich erected this monument near the river, near the execution site of Felix Mentz. 
here we're uh, in the put it into the Limont River uh, from the fishing platform Felix Mens and uh, five other Taufer that's Anabaptist in the time of the Reformation between 1527 and 1532 uh, and basically that this plaque is a repentance by the city of Zurich 1969 for that plaque now um, there are many things that I could discuss here, but let me skip several years now, sadly. And we'll go now to 1529. It's October, again, that great Reformation month. Okay, here we are in October 15, uh, 2019. This is October 1529. And Zwingli has been preaching the New Testament and the Old Testament, the scriptures, for 10 years and more. And he's become a rather famous fellow. Maybe you'd never heard of him, but a lot, most people in Europe had heard something about what was going on there in, in Zurich. And um, the Protestant territories are now deeply at risk. Francis I, the king of France, hates Protestantism. Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, that's essentially the, the German emperor, hates Protestantism. And if ever the two of them should get together, it would pretty much spell the end of Protestantism. Later on in Calvin's commentaries and prayers, we discover that Calvin had the great fear that the king of France and the king of the German territories would ally, and that would be the end of Geneva's Protestantism, and there would be massacre. Geneva was, in fact, attacked in 1605 and survived it. The Escalade is what it's called. It survived it, but it was an ordeal. So in 1529, the Protestant princes and the Protestant church leaders know of their danger. There is an attempt to create an alliance of the Protestant uh, pastors and the Protestant princes because if they could have a cooperation and alliance of church, they could also have a, a cooperation and alliance of state. And here we have to get rid of our American idea to understand this well. The American idea of separation of church and state did not exist in that time. That was a very foreign idea. Scarcely anyone had ever entertained it. And so in that time, it was only natural that a state should have a church. And if you could not ally with agreement with another state with its own church, then you could not have a military alliance either. And so in southern German at Marburg, Germany at Marburg, um, with um, German princes such as Philip of Hesse and... Um, and um, uh, the Brandenburg prince, okay, and others. Luther is there. Let's see. Luther is this fellow. Zwingli is this fellow. Philip Melanchthon, where is he? I, um, hmm, I'm, not sure. I, I'm not sure which one's Philip, Luther's best friend. But um, there at Marburg, 15 articles have been written out for debate. Luther and Zwingli are the most important men at the table. Fourteen of the fifteen are agreed upon. Principles such as sola scriptura, that the Bible is not the only authority, but rather among the various legitimate authorities that God has placed in the world, in church and state, the Bible is the only infallible authority. Okay, many legitimate authorities, one infallible authority. By the way, that's very different often from the American idea of the Bible as the only authority. That's not a Reformation idea. The Bible is the only authority. No, the Bible is the only infallible authority. And so the goal is an alliance of Protestant states with one united church, 
Zwinglians and Lutherans alike. In the Marburg Articles, they will agree upon 14 of these. One will not. And the article that Luther and Zwingli could not agree upon is the article about the Lord's Supper and the question of the real presence of Christ. Now, neither one of these men is Roman Catholic. That is, neither one believes in transubstantiation any longer. They both had practiced it as they were Roman priests. Luther and Zwingli alike had done the liturgies and said the hocus corpus meum, which comes out as hocus pocus in Reformation jokes. And, uh, okay, all had done it, but had descended from it eventually and left it behind. But in Luther's idea, Christ is truly present bodily, not as the bread, nor as the wine, but in and with and under the bread. So if you direct your devotion toward the bread, you are directing it toward Jesus, who is there in body too. And Luther and his friends will say that in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, Christ, quote, is chewed by the teeth. And Luther will even say that even the unbeliever unworthily taking the supper chews Christ with the teeth. Zwingli can hardly believe his ears that Luther will say this, that even the unbeliever will choose, C-H-E, will chew Christ with the teeth. And uh, Zwingli's idea is rather different. He's accused of being merely a memorialist. This is not true. The memorial idea is that the bread and wine represent. And the main idea is that you, by remembering, are the principal actor in the blessedness of the Lord's Supper. This is not Zwingli. That might be some American church that you've been to, but it is not Zwingli. Instead, the Zwingli idea, which comes out in fuller form in 1527, is this. That in the supper, Jesus' body remains in heaven, but by the Holy Spirit, all the blessedness of his death and resurrection is made present to the believer by faith. Now, that particular doctrine is better known as Calvin's doctrine. Those in Zurich will never go quite as far as Calvin in expressing it in richness. But Zwingli is well on the way toward the Calvinist doctrine of spiritual presence, which is a version of real presence, at least according to Calvinism. But Luther and Zwingli do not agree. In fact, after um, a break for lunch, Luther goes to the debate table, pulls aside the silk tablecloth, takes a piece of chalk out of his um, professorial uh, pocket, and writes in chalk, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. And for Luther, that sentence remained crucially important because he will assert that the body is there, not by transubstantiation. The later term invented by others will be consubstantiation. And in the afternoon session of the debate, when Zwingli is holding forth about the word is not being literal, but a symbol. You know, this is what the definition of is is. Have you heard that before? Okay, yeah, that's the kind of debate there. Okay, Luther pulls the tablecloth aside and bangs on the chalk and says, Hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. At the end of the colloquy, Luther and Zwingli will reluctantly shake hands. And they will walk away with more respect for each other. 
But when Zwingli is killed after a battle two years later, Luther will essentially say, good thing. Good thing. He's gone. All right, now in 1529, the uh, Swiss cantons have divided over Zwingli in the Reformation. More than half the cantons have remained Roman Catholic. Um, only a minority have followed Zur uh, Zwingli in Zurich. And in June 1529, there was in fact a, uh, a near war. We'll call it the first, Cap the first um, Capel War. It happens on a, on a hillside in the high altitudes at Capel, a place that means chapel. And there the two armies come to the battle line, but no shots are fired. In fact, um, they share the provisions and they set up a cooking pot right on the boundary between the two armies. And they all put in their meat or their cheese or whatever they got. And one side is meat, the other side is cheese. And they have a dinner together. But if you put your hand over the line, you get swatted away. Yeah? The Swiss are the only ones who fight wars over meal. Uh, so the first Capel War ends in a stalemate and actually peace. Zurich has gone out well-armed and well-prepared for that, and Zurich and Zwingli is upset that a war of defense has not happened. He thinks they would have won that, and Zurich would have been safe for Protestantism. The army, by the way, on the other side has been raised by the bishop. You know, imagine a bishop raising an army that actually was rather common in that period. Even Pope Julius II would dress in golden armor armor and ride out at the front of his troops to lead them into battle for the Roman church. Alexander VI, notice the names, Julius, Alexander, these are the names of popes named after military commanders as the ideal. All right, so churchmen as warriors, ah. All right, so the bishop raises an army again. And in October 1531, the armies approach again the battle site at Capel. And now the Zurichers are not well prepared. They're outnumbered and outgunned. And by mid-afternoon, they are defeated. Zwingli himself has come the second day of the maneuverings as chaplain to the troops. He carries a two-edged sword, or in some translations of the Schweitzer Deutsch text, a two-headed axe. We're not sure what weapon it is. And it seems that he, too, participated as a combatant, though chaplain to the troops. And he's wounded in battle. In the late afternoon, uh, the wounded Zurichers now defeated the battle over. The victory conceded. There, Zwingli is discovered among the wounded, recognized by a man from the other side. Oh, there's the heretic. And a knight from the bishop's army walks over with broadsword and rams him through with it. In the rules of warfare of that time and place, that is murder. You do not kill the defeated enemy. Zwingli is murdered on the battlefield. He sees the man coming, and the alleged last words are these. You can kill the body, but not the soul. Since the bishop's army is the victorious power, the priest of the victorious army then take the corpus of Zwingli and subject it to a heresy trial. He is easily convicted. He says nothing is own defense. And having been convicted, he is then uh, drawn and quartered and uh, the body hacked and then burnt. Two days later, Zurichers looking for the remnants of their loved ones to bury something 
find the ashes of Audric Zwingli. And they find that the center of his chest has not burned, but rather his heart muscle remains intact. And so the man who hated relics and preached against them becomes a relic. His heart is taken and put into a wooden chest and kept. And the man who hated relics becomes a relic. We don't know where that box is now. Good thing. Okay. Good thing. So uh, you can kill the body, but not the soul. Now, I've got more things that I can say here, but I see that it's now three minutes after 8 o'clock. And I'll just read through a list that Timothy George, a great Reformation historian who studied with George Williams, uh, uh, put together. And Okay, so creature, I'm sorry, but uh, so creator rather than creature. So no idolatry. In Zwingli's theology, the greatest sin of all is idolatry, worshiping something that is not God, including the bread of the Mass. All right, so creator rather than creature, no idolatry, providence rather than chance. You Calvinist in the room, you, know, you believe that your whole life is in the divine plan of God from all eternity, right? Good Augustinians in the room, yeah, you believe that. Zwingli believed that. There is no such thing as chance. Never wish Zwingli good luck. Instead say something like good providence or God bless you. By the way, I hold the same opinion. A holy scripture rather than human tradition, true religion rather than ceremony. And um, the kingdom of God, where can it be found? Not only in the heart, though yes there, but also even in states and societies that organize themselves by the principles of God's word. You covenanters in the room, do you recognize that principle? For Christ's crown and covenant. And so we see that Zwingli's themes are good Presbyterian themes, and the regulative principle of worship is on, is, is high on his list of themes. And so um, in uh, my last slide, I quote from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is uh, marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, and perfecter of our faith. In the portrait here from the middle 16th century, a portrait made uh, 20 or 30 years after the death of Zwingli, he is holding a copy of the Zurich Bible. Published in 1531, that summer, he had only a few months left to live. But the Zurich Bible was a complete Bible in German three years before Luther's. He took a good chunk of Luther's New Testament which had been published in 1522, and he and his friend Leo Judd, who had been Jewish, together put together a complete Old and New Testaments in good German, the Zurich Bible. That was the first Protestant Bible in German language, and there he is holding his Zurich Bible, Zwingli, uh, the principal translator of the Old Testament text. All right, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you very much. Uh, Jonathan, you want to moderate questions? For I was going to suggest 
why don't we do five minutes, public questions, and, and then, then we'll break. I mean, maybe there's something that you're just dying to ask. Okay, the Beaver Falls College. You know, a, a few minutes. Maybe there's nothing, maybe there's something. How loudly do the cookies call? Uh, yes, Patricia. So the question for Patricia is, why is Zwingli not so well known? In, in, in the article that I just published, I say in one of the opening lines that he's the uh, most important reformer that no one's ever heard of. You know, it's a bit like Coney Island. You know, uh, Yogi Berra says 60 years ago that uh, it's so crowded no one goes there anymore. You know. So why have we never heard of him? Uh, well, he, he died at age 47 and had 12 years of ministry as Protestant, essentially. Six years of those actually as Roman Catholic. So 12 years of ministry in Zurich, six as officially Protestant. And um, his principles were left for others to work out with more detail and more um, persuasion. So uh, his successor was Heinrich Bullinger, um, who had a long career in Zurich and became a friend and companion of Calvin. And, um, and so on one side of Switzerland, the north side, um, Zurich, and way on the other side of the Alps in a town that is not even Swiss at that time, Geneva, we have um, longer and more influential ministries of the same principles, but now worked out with more detail. So Calvin is still a Roman Catholic, and Calvin is what? Um, when Zwingli dies in 31, Calvin is 22. Um, and so um, that, that Genevan Reformation will outshine the one in Zurich. And Zurich will become more or less tributary to the theology of Geneva, and its teachings become less important in the constellation of what becomes Reformed Protestantism. So when, um, when British Isles Protestants have to flee town because of Bloody Mary in um, 1553, um, they do not in general go to Zurich, they go to Geneva. If they're not in Amsterdam or one of the Holland free cities or Strasbourg, another free city, they're in Geneva. John Knox will go to Geneva when he's exiled and a year and a half in Geneva, then he'll pastor in Frankfurt. And then Mary will die in 1558, and Britain opens up again. And by 1560, he's in Scotland, and Scotland becomes Presbyterian uh, within a very brief time under John Knox. But it's, it's, a, it's a Presbyterianism that he didn't learn in Zurich. He learned it in Geneva. So, so the historical accident is that Zurich gets bypassed Partly because of the early death of the man. Is there another question? Say again? There are no historical accidents. <laughs> Not a sparrow or a Zwingli falls apart from the father. Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse uh, what, 31? No, verse 29, yeah. Not a Zwingli falls apart from the father. So says the Lord. Is there another question? Uh, Quinn. Um, 
Is it a stepson or is it a son? I, I, um, at least two stepsons are killed at the battle of, Second Battle of Capel. I don't believe he had any surviving children. So Calvin too, you know, his wife gives birth a couple of times, but the children are stillborn. There's a son that lives for a day or two. There are no descendants of Calvin and there are no descendants of Zwingli, if I remember correctly. One more question, then we break for cookies. Zwingli liked cookies, by the way. No, no, they didn't exist. By the way, Zwingli, I've got a whole page of Zwingli jokes. I could give those to uh, I, I forget your name, sir. Doug, go ahead, Doug. What happened in uh, Zurich after the Second Battle? Did Roman Catholicism come back in? Uh, no, the, the battle was not around the city. The city was not itself besieged. The walled city of Zurich was a pretty defensible place. And Capel is uh, several miles away and on a hillside. So the army of Zurich was a bit foolish in marching out. They would have done better had they simply manned their post at the city gate, you know, on, on city walls. But they left their defensive point and uh, with military weakness met the enemy upon the field. So one of the rules of war, if you read von Clausewitz's great work called On War, is that you choose the point of battle. You, know, you choose the battlefield, not the enemy. Um, and uh, they arrive at the battlefield already outnumbered and outgunned. So um, Zurich remained independent, um, but it took the influence and the military power of Bern and Basel, their allied states further to the west, to maintain the independence of Zurich. Those city-states also chose for Reformation, and so did Strasbourg, the most important South German city uh, near them on the Rhine, and the combination of Strasbourg, Germany, Basel and Bern um, enabled the Swiss Protestants to remain independent and viable. So Strasbourg is where Calvin will be for two years after the Genevans boot him out. That's a very important city for Protestant history and the Strasbourg-Zurich axis of theology is a very important issue in, in the studies of early Reformation. Jonathan, is it time for cookies? Thank you all very much. God bless you all.